All right, Leah, welcome to the Evidently Legal podcast. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great. Well, why don't, uh, why don't we get started by talking a little bit about sort of, you know, who you are, you know, what you're, what you do at your firm. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and then we'll talk around, um, you know, who your clients are, the types of things they're dealing with. And then we'll get into some of the business side of things as well. But why don't we start uh, a little bit with, you know, your background, where are you from? What type of law do you practice? Okay. Sure. So I grew up, um, in mid Missouri and, um, I was one of seven kids, and so there's a lot of chaos in the house, and I was excited to go away. I um, got a scholarship and went to Marquette University for my undergrad, and then went straight from Marquette to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, I actually had never been to North Carolina. I arrived sight unseen. Okay. I knew the reputation, and uh, it was actually memorable for me. So after three years of law school, I was lucky enough to get a job um, as an attorney right after I took the bar here in Asheville, North Carolina. And that was the summer of 1992. Okay. And I didn't know what areas I really wanted to do. Um, there was areas that I was interested in. And I lucked out because I went to work for a solo attorney named David Gant, who had been alone, I think, without any other attorney for maybe 15 years. So I was his first ever associate. And because of uh, that job right out of law school, I learned what I have continued to practice. So he had a very busy practice doing social security disability, workers' compensation um, plaintiffs. And then he also at that time did partial injury. When I came on as an associate, he encouraged me to also uh, sign up and be a court-appointed attorney. So I did court-appointed criminal um, misdemeanors, felonies, and also court-appointed federal. So I did state and federal jury trials, uh, motions, appeals, uh, briefs to the Court of Appeals. Um, and so I did that plus Social Security Disability and what was called. So my first 15 years of practice, I honestly don't know how I did all of it because you're in Hearings for a workers' call, your mediations for workers' call, um, having live social security disability hearings um, in three different locations, predominantly Asheville. And then also, um, I did have some personal injury cases and contract cases. And then I was handling speeding tickets and felony trials. Um, I had a second trial. Okay. I, on the quarter point roster, I, was co-counsel on three different death penalty motions for appropriate relief. That's where they've lost that their trial, they've lost it direct appeal to the Supreme Court. And then this is another option and it's all done. So I did three of those. Um, I later withdrew when I no longer did criminal practice. Um, but I have three of still alive on death row in North Carolina, which is a whole other story. So for the last 15 years, I've narrowed my practice only to social security disability, which also includes disability Medicaid. Um, North Carolina, unfortunately, has refused to expand Medicaid. So our citizens they have some types of Medicaid they're eligible for. They might be eligible for family Medicaid or other types, but if they are um, without minor kids um, and they're a disabled adult, we have to go through the hoops to prove they were disabled. And Medicaid requires the same finding as Social Security. So okay. I also have my clients uh, 
have some more appealing or Medicaid denials, and then we have Medicaid hearings. The good news is sometimes people win Medicaid through the Medicaid hearing, state hearing process, long before they ever win or lose their Social Security case down the road. So getting the medical care is obviously life-changing. Yeah. And then I've also done what was called throughout my practice. Um, about my actual practice, I left Daniel Gant, where I was an associate after four years, um, and went out on my own. And so I continued to do the same practice areas. And I was solo for almost seven years. And then I brought in a partner, um, a good friend of mine, and kind of taught first social security workers call. So we were a partnership, like in Hamburg for 15 years, still in downtown Asheville. And then five and a half years ago, we decided to um, part ways and I returned to solo practice. Um, still downtown, different small office, and um, and like I said, have continued to do Social Security and Medicaid and then workers' comp. Got it. I mean, that sounds like a very busy start to your legal career, uh, Leah. And so it sounds like you needed more than twenty four hours in a day to get all of that all of that done. It's it's incredible, sort of the breadth of of how your practice started. Um, right. You know, I know you did you you, you did disability, you did workers' comp, you did criminal, you did a little bit of PI. Did you know pretty early on, once you started doing disability and workers' comp type cases, that that was going to be the practice area for you? Was there sort of an early there? Yeah, sorry. I I'm, I think I enjoyed it I realized first because, I mean, I was a very young attorney. Um, I was licensed. I was just before I was 25. And so I was young and I was not married. I did not have kids and it was just exciting. So I enjoyed my time in the criminal court setting and those folks. Um, and then I really did enjoy social security workers comp. And I think I just felt that was good at it. My personality, just the way the cases were. So yes, as, um, like I said, after four years when I decided to go out on my own because I wanted to be self-employed, when at that time, Oh, and my employer who again was great, trained me, you know, taught me those areas. He wasn't quite ready to have a partner, you know, an equity partner. And so that's why I, I left. Um, the good thing was the way these the way cases go like this, the client hires a particular lawyer. So all the clients have like signed up for me, even though I was an associate, um, the state law will say they need to choose their lawyer. Right. So we had to, we agreed upon language in a letter. So he sent his letter to all the clients, basically saying, this is what's happening. I'm happy to keep your case. And then I got to write a letter saying, this is what's happening. I'd love to continue to be your attorney. So when I started my own practice, I found my office space. Um, I had a paralegal that I stole. Well, she came with me. And then I had over 100 cases come with me. So I hit the ground running hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So, you know, I mean, so, you know, I know now you do primarily sort of disability and, and workers comp, and it sounds like in the early days, you know, your typical day was probably pretty chaotic. It sounds like you're going from hearing to hearing to courthouse, doing all sorts of things. You know, what does your typical day look like now practicing, you know, disability and, and workers comp? Like what's, what's an average Monday or Wednesday for you these days? Right. So, um, First, I just want to say a lot of law firms shut down through COVID, and I did not. Um, there was a couple of weeks when the governor kind of shut down the state and panicked 
my two paralegals went and from home, but I had to come in every day and and open the mail and scan it in so they could work there. But they were only had a couple of weeks and then so I'm here seeing clients again, maybe there was a month we did telephone only video. But very quickly on, I was back to seeing clients live in the office. So I just wanted to point that out because it was interesting. I'm in quite a few associations and lawyer groups, and I'm on these great, helpful listservs. And I was shocked six months, one year, one and a half years later, yeah. these demands. And so I have seen from home, they weren't meeting any of their clients at, I don't know how you do that because I decide to take a case for that. I'm, I'm judging the merits of the case. Are they disabled? Is this something I could win? Is, yeah. You know, and I have to see that. So I just want to point that out. So yeah, typical day, I'm a day is what I see, you know, new clients, you know, two or three a day. I have a lot of now appointments for a 16 client when they get scheduled for a hearing. Yep. So they come in and we prepare for the hearing. We practice the questions. We practice the answers. I review to make sure all the medical evidence we have or we know about or we've born. Um, and then... My hearings vary greatly. That's, um, you, you know, on the list, you're going to ask me about challenges. My biggest challenge is I don't control the scheduling. So, for instance, I had 10 social security hearings in the month of May, which wow. is too many. Like, yeah. it was absolutely bananas here with stress. And that's a lot of records to order and get in. And then I have one in the month of September. No control over that. It's amazing. You know, I do have three different office hearings. Um, there many post COVID has been a buzzword. Um, we did telephone only for a year, then they finally figured out how to do video, which what everybody else was doing in the world. Took them a year to roll it out, out. So for the last year, I've had video hearings. And then last week, I had my very, two weeks ago, I had my very first night in person. So I got to go to the Federal Building and Okay. In my time with the security guys, yeah. I was like, hey, how have you been for the last two and a half years? Um, so, yeah, again, and we had, I might have one hearing, I might have four hearings. I've had weeks where I've had six hearings. Um, and then my cult practice it is smaller than my social security practice, but it's picking up lately. And those, I've had several mediations successfully, and those were all done by Zoom. Okay. Um, where the mediator somewhere else and the opposing counsel. Um, yeah. And that's another transition. I really prefer a live mediation. Parties come together in a conference room. The lawyer for the insurance company can see my client, yep. you know, make them an actual human being and not just um, paper a risk or going to cost them money. Um, and then you break out in other rooms. So I'm looking forward to getting back to a full live practice. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you know, the, the seeing your client as a human being, right? I mean, the, the human aspect of, of practicing law and in particular the areas that you practice in, right? In social security disability and then workers comp, right? I mean, it's, it, there's are people who don't just have a legal issue. There, there's a big underlying life issue that's going on. And, oh, yeah. you know, I'd love to hear, you know, from you, you know, what, what kinds, you know, who are your sort of typical clients? What are they experiencing when they come to you? Uh, you sure. know, the human side of, of those types of legal issues. Yes. Um, 
I will say that I practice, I would say that I'm practicing law two thirds of it and I'm a social worker one third. Um, both myself and then my two paralegals, we are constantly, constantly having to refer them for housing assistance, building nutrition, food stamps, um, other charities. Uh, there's a, I represent a lot of homeless folks, and so we partner with Homer Bound here in Asheville. And so there's a lot of, you know, assistance. And not a lot of not offices do that, I'll be honest. Um, a lot of things, they just, they want the low-hanging fruit, right? So let me just do your disability case. Oh, you're super messed up. I won't deal with um, your Medicaid. I'm not going to deal with this. But here, it's it's difficult to not help because, like I said, if they don't have medical insurance and if they don't have Medicaid, how are they going to go to the doctors yeah. the records so they improve your case? So that's why I do the Medicaid. It's not because I'm, you know, overly benevolent. It's just, you know, I'm not going to get paid for that time, but if I ultimately win their Social Security case, I get paid, you know, yeah. to take the, that. So I do help them apply for Medicaid. You know, you can tell, you can and I said, oh, you just need to call the summer, you need to file that. They won't do it. So I'm constantly filling out their Medicaid applications, faxing it to the DSS office in their county, following up. Um, when they say, I didn't think I could get any treatment, I don't have insurance, we have, there's a mental health treatment available with state funds, right? Okay. So if you already have no insurance, I sit here on the phone and I dial up Viadas, which is the um, MCO for this region for middle health. And I came in the signs with a client and they ask questions and then they have an appointment the next day or the next day. So my clients range from homeless, um, absolutely crippling poverty, generational poverty. Um, Asheville is a beautiful small city, but we are in the heart of Appalachia. And so I represent folks in 17 surrounding counties. Okay. Um, they, some of them live in absolute, it's just unbelievable. Multiple families, you know, in a very, only that they live in a mobile home, you know, they don't have access to healthy food. Um, a lot of my clients, um, you know, frankly, they look like they're out of central casting from, from a movie about the Balacha because just the poverty when you leave, you know, that is the immediate area of all the tourists and yeah. the, the microbreweries and the galleries. Um, I represent safes a lot. I do two cases. So again, with a lot of social security disability lawyers that will not take a child SSI case. SSI is supplemental security income. Sure. You have to prove the same disability as regular social security disability. It's just that what well, you never worked or maybe you didn't pay in and out work recently enough. So it may be that's all you're gonna get. It's this they're competitive. And then I have a lot of clients who have worked paid in and that social disability is what they paid in as if they were going to draw their retirement. So if you prove they're disabled, they get to draw them. And that's not record based. So I have a a, a pretty even mix of what we call SSI again, they either never moved or they didn't work enough or they were cash under the table. In their court. Uh, so I have kids with just full backstories. I have been with kids that have been severely abused. A lot of kids on the autism spectrum. Um, 
And then also I'll have an occasional kid with just awful like heart transplant, psychophalanemia, um, just real awful physical things. But the bulk of the kid characters for sure are mental health. Um, a lot of developmental delays, really sad stories. And then also reference that, um, like I said, just your working class, you know, dreaming on drivers, just everyday folks. Um, I, I also represent a group of veterans. North Carolina is home to a, a, a large number of military bases. And in Asheville, we have one of the top ranked VA centers. So the VA Medical Center, the Charles George Lee Health Center is a huge campus here. All services. So veterans end up coming here who are homeless, but they're not actually homeless. They're coming to live here to get that treatment. And I'm part of the nonprofit. I'm a referral source for NC Service Western, and it's a wonderful nonprofit that helps any veteran at any status for their family or their caregiver. So I see a large number of disabled veterans who are getting some sort of VA benefits but some of them not due to their discharge status. And I help them get social security disability. And so I've had a lot of just unbelievable stories of PTSD from Iraq and Afghanistan, mainly. I mean, some uh, go back a little farther, like just Kuwait, um, the Gulf War in general. So I see a lot of those. And I love helping them. They are kind of like my their clients, but also they're the most reluctant because the her that kind of culture, they do not want to go to lawyers. It's always interesting. Some of them are really friendly and chatty and others. We just don't, we just like yeah. help them and then we just are struggling. And then I also have really interesting cases. Um, we are only about an hour drive from the Cherokee Nation. So the... The Cherokee folks, even though they are in their own sovereign boundary, they have access to state and federal benefits. So I have enjoyed representing and learning more about their culture. I've had children. I've had represented the young, young Cherokee girl whose grandmother was raising her, and she had been severely abused. And it, it is real hard to read those records, um, but didn't get them approved. Um, I have another, I've had several where they live on the reservation, but they come here, they hire me, we do their hearing. And, and so that has been really interesting. And then as far as my workers comp client, um, it's been, you name it, you know, truck driver, uh, sheriff's deputy, uh, firefighters, and then factory workers, grocery workers, the hospital. Um, it's really a variety. Um, you know, we've had guys in construction. One guy saw about three fingers accidentally. <laughs> wow. So, you know, you see it all. You feel that out of um, horrendous medical records, both psychological and otherwise. Um, and then really recently, I've had three verified cancer cases and getting ready to participate in a state out of town panel next week that I'm really excited about because. The evidence, the medical and epidemiological uh, evidence is really changing rapidly, and um, we're learning more and more about the the peak ask carcinogens that are actually in all their protective gear. 
And so um, I'm hoping to represent a lot more. Now, what's sad about it is my first case was a widow of a career firefighter. And then I ended up, um, and then ended up getting a firefighter who had cancer. And we settled his case. And then a month after we settled it, he has another new cancer. Oh, wow. Sad. And then he referred me to another firefighter who um, struggling with stomach and liver cancer after, you know, 27 years career. So the sad thing is, is sometimes you have clients die, you know, and then over the years I've had clients, you know, either pass away, commit suicide, but luckily not a huge percent, but. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, just even just hearing these stories, I have sort of a lump in my throat, even just hearing about it. Um, and, you know, obviously the work you do is amazing. Right? I mean, it's so impactful on people's lives. And, you know, I, it sounds like it's, it's, it's potentially incredibly stressful, but also maybe motivating. I mean, how, how does, how does it impact you, you know, when you, when you're practicing law and helping these folks through their obviously legal issues, but obviously it sounds like you do a lot more than that, but you know, how do you sort of balance that? Is it, is it both? Is it stressful and motivating? I mean, what, how does that impact you? Yeah, so definitely I'm moving. I just hit my 30 and at practicing anniversary a couple of weeks ago. Um, I would definitely not be able to do what I do in the hours I do with Jenna. It was high stress and no reward, but it's very rewarding to help people. I mean, I've had a hearing that never should have gone to a hearing, right? It was the, it was a child with, I've never seen a diabetes case that bad. He's born in type one, you know, he's on an insulin pump, but it is, it is so uncontrolled that his mother cannot sleep. She has to check on him all night long. He can die. And so it's severe. And they decided, so Scribby said, you're not disabled anymore. So then we took away his monthly check that they needed. So we appealed and kept his benefits going. And it, he, his mom was just a wreck and nervous. And we had to go all the way up, you know, denied appeal, denied appeal, had a hearing. Meanwhile, you know, she, we're getting the logs from his blood sugars. They go from 40 or 50 to 500, just. She was fighting to keep him alive. I mean, she constantly having even juicing and killing him. And I, one way, it never should have gone to a hearing. And we had a really short hearing. And the judge told her, yes, he thinks he still functionally meets the listing for diabetes. And she starts to cry. So we get off the hearing. It was with video. And she just hugs through her eyebrow. We just stabbed She was just a what? And so, you know, you can't beat that. We hugged and thanked. But, um, yeah, so it was stressful, but I don't want to set air out of public. It's just what I've been doing for 30 years. So it's like, and it's, it's stressful. There's constant deadlines. There's constantly preparing. You have to file this. You have statute of limitations, you know, on the workers' comp. Um, the... May, I'm going to say, I mean, it's awful. We never should have had 14 hearings. I'm, I'm a solo attorney. As there is no other lawyer. It is me and two paralegal. That is it. Um, I have a bookkeeper who, thank God for her. She does all the payroll, all the tax, you know, doing with all of that. She works remotely every week. You have one for CPA, where she do all like corporate returns. 
I have the best IT guy ever again. He's not one for me. He's just, you know, pay as he comes. I want to say that since we went, since I shifted from the partnership where I had a little in Europe and we had three or four employees, at one time we had up to five, I think. Shifted back to some long small office and only two employees. I will say I started doing way that I wish was in. I mean, I do stuff that I wish I had a management this manager to do. You know, I wrote half as if I had it, I'll chase down this or that. So that's a layer of stress that's different than the stress of trying to help someone and, you know, really really prove your case to the judge. You know, it's a different stress. The bureaucracy is in here um, since COVID, the Social Security Administration, they get all Fs. I mean, we deal with a state agency that contracts with Social Security. They get an F minus minus their author and the turnover. They're underfunded, understaffed. They all worked from home. The rest of us were here. They were not. Um, You couldn't get an appointment. My clients don't have Wi-Fi. They don't have computers. I have clients that are completely you know, borderline or literary, and they say, oh, please go online to SSA.gov. And it's like, you can't go online, you know? And so that stress has been what has probably yeah. definitely affected my, you know, the then how it was just um, the extra hoops. Like what would have happened in three deaths is now 12. It's For just... Chasing me, nobody's doing their job. You send stuff, you get no acknowledgement. So, yeah, and I mean, you know, sort of the you know the area of law that you practice, right? It sounds like it sounds like you. You're and maybe you don't think about it this way, but like when I hear it, it sounds like you must be sort of a master of compartmentalization, right? And you've got you've got you've got to do the legal work. You're dealing with you know really sort of emotional and impactful client you know clients that are going through um, you know, really difficult times. Then you're dealing with the government bureaucracy, trying to get the paperwork filed, getting answers from the government. And then you've got the, the you know, sort of, then you have to run your business as well as a owner and an entrepreneur. Um, how do you get it all done? How do, how do you, is, are you a master of compartmentalization or what, or you just do it? You've just done it for so long and now you just do it. Um, yeah, lately I have felt maybe overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. What I do is I just, you know, I take too many breaks. So it's like, you know, you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram, you're on LinkedIn, you're um, distracting that way. But um, I guess I'm able to do it because I have two fantastic um, full-time paralegals. They deal with 99% of every phone call that comes in. I don't. If I was answering the phone, forget about it. You know? Nothing done. Yeah, exactly. Um, We have the email set up. That it goes, you know, the email info of that, and it goes to William and the paralegals. Um, I just created a rule in my inbox because I'm like, I don't need all these. So now anything that's set to info, I have going a separate founder because they're going to handle it. Yeah. Um, they also do all the medical record ordering and the chasing down of records. And it would have to say, um, the way my magic wand to change something is if you know the amount of money and time we spend simply to chase down our clients' own medical records from their providers, you would say I was a liar. 
having thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands to these private third parties who contract with the hospital or the doctors to copy their records. Well, they don't copy anything. They're all digital. Yeah. So they upload to a portal and they just charge me 75 cents a page. So wow. I pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for each provider. But if the client asks for it, they get it for free. But my clients, I cannot entrust them to do that. It's overwhelming. It's stressful. Yeah. So that is something now I will say, you know, our movements that are happening and there's some proposed rule changes that would change the price. But if you just look at the time we spend, you know, calling, well, I faxed it. Well, we didn't get it. Well, what's your fax? I'm like, oh, we have that. That's what we said. I have the fax verification. Well, I'm sorry, send it again. All day, every day. It is, it is, it makes me so angry and it makes you want to scream. And so this is the client's own medical records where you would think you were breaking into ducks. So get it. I mean, just hearing the word fax these days, right? is sort of incredible. I think we have digital. And so that's the good thing is, um, yeah, we have a fax machine, but it's just, it goes to a digital. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Maryland, Maryland, they're using a portal, so we download it. But again, they upload these medical electronic medical records to a portal. We download them, and then I have to pay them $275, you know, for that one PDF. Just, just, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, like you said, I mean, it sounds like, you know, these are things that you know your clients could request themselves, but they may not be in a situation where either they're yeah. that or you know they're dealing with fifteen other things in their life that is quite difficult, and you know it's hard to get somebody to necessarily move on that. You know, well, yeah. So we just we have to do it, you know. And sometimes we go to school records because we have a folks that are marginally educated, and we need to document that. Um, and so I think it's 25 bucks a pop just to get, again, an electronic download of their school records. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I don't even know it, but I think it's just second nature. Okay. I mean, I do take breaks. I take vacations. You know, I'm not here 12 hours a day. I'm not. Um, yeah. I don't even work steady weekends. I work the guy probably tomorrow because I'm catching up from a nice little vacation I took over Labor Day. Um, and I'm supposed to put rain tomorrow, so why not? But, you know, I'm self-employed. That's what you can do, right? I can leave early and go to my daughter's soccer game. I can leave early to, and by early, I mean, I'm going to learn a business day. You know, I can come and go as I need to, to take care of going to her school events, events, and then I'll just make up for it later. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how important is that to you, right? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, doing this type of work day in and day out, there's a lot to get done. There's probably things that can get done all day, every day. And, you know, I remember when I practiced, you know, the, the, the practice of law, it's hard to break away, right? There, there are things that always need to get done, clients that always need answers to things, hearings that are coming up, a variety of different things. And it was always hard to kind of take that time away. I mean, how important has that been to you to sort of balance, you know, your day-to-day practice of law, which is, you know, again, a, a, you know, an area that I think has a lot of aspects to it that are, you know, both rewarding and, and, and difficult. Um, you know, have you made that a priority to take some, take time off? Oh yeah. I would have to say huge priority, um, is my family. Uh, also my parents are elderly and my dad's, um, battling cancer again, and they live in Missouri. And so 
I I have a trip. I spent one there in July. I'm going back the weekend in October. I'm going to go the whole week of Thanksgiving. I'm going to go the whole week of Christmas. And I went on my calendar and I blocked it all out. Um, I have all of these you know, practices and soccer games on my calendar. Glad I has I had it later in life, but um, it's been the best thing ever because I had a long period of practicing without a child, and then last fifteen years with. And I said, thank goodness, because I would probably be a workaholic if I didn't have, um, you know, just that natural scheduling to do things with her. So I think I do a good job. In fact, um, I don't remember what year it was. Quite a few years ago. Um, I think in the early 2000s, my law partner and I, we won Balanced Life Award from the North Carolina Association of Women Attorneys. And, yeah, so somebody nominated us because we just like, we took a good job of balancing. We both had young kids. We both did. Um, because what I leave my practice law, I'm always on at least two local nonprofit boards. Um, in fact, I don't know that I've ever not been on the board since 1992. It's just, you got to get back to the community. So I've been on the, you know, YWC, I've been on Physical Legal Services Board, I've been on um, the Western County Medical Society Foundation Board. Um, right now I'm on the Medical Society Development Council and also um, on the board of Blanco Center for Recovery Learning. It actually is where my daughter went, but it's it's a huge program, and you know you have to schedule that. So when you look at my calendar, I have the board meetings down, and then you get all the emails associated with the board work. So sometimes you have to respond or vote. I was I was president of the statewide Kind Association attorneys. In the late 90s, I traveled for that, went to other conferences. I've been officers at local, you know, the Power Association here, different uh, affinity groups, you know, the young lawyers, and then officer within the attorneys, and then quite a few professional organizations. So if you went to my calendars, there's a lot, but, but I, I wouldn't have been able to in the sense that. When I saw one, she gets to me and like, I have some of my best friends to this day, like my closest inner circle. And some of them I met, you know, and I was like, my daddy's in the You know, you meet people outside of your, yeah. your area, right? Yeah. And, and it benefits myself personally, but it also benefits just because you get a lot of models, right? Everybody yeah. Have a week on there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can't, you know, you educate what you do. Yeah. And I got to know, I love my medical society foundation because um, they, A, I got to meet a whole bunch of great doctors and get to know them personally, but they didn't realize how hard it is for the folks trying to get Social Security and Medicaid, you know, because they're just doing their job. And the program, their biggest program is Project Access, which is they have doctors that see folks for free who have no insurance. So I have to advise the screening people because the screening people need to know that, yes, you can give them free medical care, but hey, are you asking them, why haven't you applied for Medicaid? Why haven't you applied for Social Security, which will then give you Medicare? So I've, I've um, kind of consulted with them trying to improve that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, just just hitting on that point, just for a quick minute here. I mean, it, you know, again, th- those de- various different services that are going to help people through this situation, maybe facing a, a disability, right? How, how I, I would imagine most of the time people don't even know that they are either supposed to be applying for those things or able to apply for those things. You know, how often do you see that? And then when they come to you, you know, you're able to f- sort of fill them in on what they need to do. But right, um, it's. There's a lot, okay? So there are a lot of folks that by the time they come to me and I'm learning how long they've been sick and how long they've not worked, and I say, are you telling me you just now applied and you haven't worked in four years? Like, how have you lived? And a lot of times they say, they say a mix of things. Some, some of say I had no idea. I thought I had to be 65. I really thought whatever. But then a lot of them, it's just pride. They said, I thought I was going to better go back to work. I thought I was going to better go back to work. And I heard that thousand times over. They, you know, just months turned into years. And then, right. So, and everybody's got a different situation. Some people are with the spouse's income or they say, why well, don't my parents? Um, so it's, it's difficult now. What I do deal with is, how ignorant people are. I'm saying, unless you practice what's doing disability law as a lawyer, you're not going to know that it does. So there's other layers that will call me or email me and they'll need guidance because they have no idea how it works, right? And how the person does it. Even an educated person has no idea that if you stop working in, you stop paying in, the clock starts running because you're only covered five years after you stop. So women get disproportionately affected by that, right? So a woman's working, she said, I'm with me home with my kids. That's awesome. Great. Um, and then what they don't realize is they're no longer contributing to their social security account. Right. And so later, if they get sick or hurt or something, they go to reply and they find out they're not eligible. And they're like, what do you mean? I paid in. Well, you didn't pay enough recently, and nobody knows about. It. I have to educate. Yeah. All right. Um, you need to, of course, take care of an elderly parent, right? And then you're creating this gap in your, uh, your income. But if you don't get a paycheck, then you're not contributing to Social Security. Right. So I have to tell people, definitely not a high percent of the time. But there are people that come to me and they say, you can't get anything. You have too much household income or assets to get SSI. And you haven't worked enough recently, you are no longer insured to draw social security disability. And they say, I mean, how am I supposed to live? And I'll say, well, <laughs> you know, that's why if you're at all, if you have any steady income whatsoever, you or your spouse or whatever, you should always have a private disability policy because you pay the premium. Right. And then you draw that if you're disabled. But people don't, people don't do that. I have one. I've been paying in. For a very large policy to the American Bar Association since I started practice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it sounds like that, you know, like you say, you, your average person probably wouldn't know a lot of this stuff. I mean, frankly, I don't think I know, uh, you know, half of it. And, you know, a lot of. I'll send you a bill. Exactly. There's, a, you know, there's a lot of, you know, resources and, and, and things that people can, can do to get help that, you know, I think is in large part, a, a bit of a, a, a black box, right? Unless you talk to somebody who is knowledge about it, knowledgeable about it, you just may not know it exists at all. Um, Absolutely. But- yeah. And like I said, even among really educated people and professionals, they just don't understand the mechanics. I can't tell you how many times I have to tell people, 
I can't get Medicare until I'm 65. And I'm like, well, no, we get Medicare two years after you're on disability benefits. You know, and so when it takes three and four years of appeals and you finally win your social security and they pay you three years of back pay, you immediately have Medicare. Um, and people don't realize that. So they yeah. offer them. I give them, you know, talks to other lawyers. I give them talks to different um, groups. Um, trying to just, I have my little social security, Medicare, Medicaid, you know, and for these or whatever, because people just have no idea. Um, all the news. Yeah. Um, another myth that you know, really makes me angry um, because I'm passionate about what I do is people say, well, oh, can't just anybody on it. Or there a bunch of, you know, people that aren't even sick or disabled and they and all that. They are, I don't know where they are because you know, I'm a musician, I've losing hearings. I've got a client that I've had. I have cases that I've won after three whole sets of ALJ hearings. So they have, they have their administrative denials. We have a hearing in front of a judge. We lose, we go to the appeals council. We lose, we go to federal court. But nothing ends in, we get a new hearing. The judge denies again. I go back up. So I've had cases five or six years long going through three sets. I had one case that went to federal court for how wow. this case. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think I heard a stat somewhere that's like less than 35% of applicants are actually successful in getting SSDI benefits. I mean, that, maybe that's consistent with what you mean. Maybe it's less. I don't know. Yeah. Right. So what you have to look at, yeah, it's it's a puzzle. Uh, but for each level, they publish. So let's figure publishes what the percent of what the kind of allowances are. Right. Yeah. Like so, how many are denied? So on initial applications at that first level, I think. 70% of denied in, in the 70-something. Yeah. Wow. And then the next appeal, the U.S. for reconsideration, they deny over 80% at the reconsideration level. And then your next step is you ask for a hearing in front of the administrative law judge. Now, that's where you hit your statistically highest chance. It used to be, it used to be we were winning, um, 70, 80% at the, at the hearing level, but that was way back when different attitudes. Now it's about 20% approval at the ALJ level, which is still higher than the first two. Right. Right. And then the appeals council only approves about 10% and by approve and you your outright approval, they remand it for another hearing. And then federal court, there's no statistics because that is not a commonly used appeal. So I do have two federal court lawyers that that handle the case at federal court. And they do really well because they're very picky. They only take cases they really know they can win at the federal court level, which is a whole different standard of review. But they win about 50%. Again, that's based on their experience and their their, their very wise case selection. Um, yeah. So I have cases, like I said, at every level and then cases that come down. So because of my uh, relationship with those other two federal lawyers, I, I get another shot at the apple. Okay. And I'm glad that a lot of social security lawyers, practitioners, um, they give up after the ALJ hearing. If they don't win, it's just like, good luck for you. I, um, so it's... It, because of how bad some of the decisions are and how awful some of the judges are. 
they're just unfair. They don't have a law and order. If you aren't appealing at every level, you know, you're really, really doing your client a disservice. Yeah. I, I mean, I constantly say we live to fight another day because, you know, you get a remand and you get another shot. I'm going to start hearing she's now 60. She started out in her early 50s with a combination of mental, mental and physical. And the same judge twice we went up on appeal, came back down, and I just wanted another remand. And she called and wanted to talk to me because she had just given up. You know, and I said, no, 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 you're not. Not fun yet. <laughs> so we only have a third hearing probably sometime at the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I, you know, there, there's so much to what you do that, that I think goes beyond just the legal aspect of it. Right. And so and one of the things I'd love to ask you is you know, when, when, what does success look like for you when representing a client? There's obviously the legal aspect of it. There's a whole bunch that goes with that as well in terms of other benefits, helping people in their circumstances. So, uh, you know, what does success look like to you? Because of the areas I do, I mean, and it is true, I don't feel like I was successful if I don't get them approved for benefits or get them a good settlement in their worst. Okay. Either a settlement or you win, in, you know, after a hearing that the deputy commissioner actually awards your case. You know, obviously... I feel success if I really, really felt, you know, we did a while, we did a great job for them. We got all the records, we got Dr. Stillman, you know, above and beyond, you know, and if you lose, that I have to say, I measured in getting them approved, getting them on benefits. Sometimes it's at a later date, the judge will say, well, we're not going to go all the way back here, but if you amend to this later date. And so success is just, you want to feel like you help them. And I've met clients that I've helped get on Medicaid, and then we just keep getting denied on their Social Security. They're keeping their Medicaid going and keeping the Social Security going. At least they're getting health care and prescriptions that they need. Um, I know there's some people, sometimes success, you have to really modify. You might sub, and it's not at all what you think the rest of the value is. But the client really wants closure. They just want to be done. You know, they want to just and they want to leave that employer and they've already left that employer and they want, you know, so I had had frustrating cases where you're like, why are you frustrated? It's settled. The client accepted it. I'm like, yeah, but they sold themselves short because if you don't say we get to go to a hearing and prove your case, not everybody wants to do that. So you have to adapt to what works for that client and not just what you hear and you might, you know, you might win way more benefits or you might win this or that. So having to listen, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, obviously you run your, you know, your own practice, you, you've, you start off working in a practice and then you worked with a partner for a bit. Now you run your own practice, um, you know, as a solo. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about sort of the, the business side of, of doing that. Um, and I know you, when you kind of came over to your practice, you, you had a bunch of clients already. Uh, where do your clients typically come from today? Are they through referral relationships you've developed or how do you, how do you go about acquiring new clients today? Yeah. So the benefit of practicing the same area in the same town is I, huge percent of my incoming clients. So former clients send me their neighbors, their kids, their sisters, their so, Pulling a former clip, we're pulling out 
And then because I was sitting on present and active in the community, I get referrals from um, the folks at the, the hospital that work in the, what's called the Medicaid eligibility office. Yeah. Send me client. Um, the agencies that do a similar found on the deal with homeless folks. They send me cases every year. And now on this platform, so the NC serves started out helping veterans and then they plugged in with an entire state wide called um, NC Care 360. And I get every agency that's part of that, you know, kind of United Way umbrella, they do referrals. And so I get it. Getting a lot from the medical society, from the mental health folks, from um, what social services, um, and other lawyers, and out of other lawyers. Yeah, yeah. And so, so when you when you sign up, uh, when, when a new client or potential new client reaches out to you, right? I mean, what did, what did that process look like? Like, tell, take us through. All right, I'm a client. I've reached out to Leah to potentially work with Leah on my issue. And what am I going to experience as a client from, you know, start all the way to when I become a client? So when they come ahead, they're going to talk to Jasper Connie and they're going to do an intake where they ask them a whole bunch of doing questions. So they, <laughs> we know, can we help you? Right. And sometimes that's easy and they have everything and they can tell you. And then other people are like, well, I'm not sure when I died and I'm not sure when it was denied or how it's somewhere, but try to help them get what they need and then they come in to see me pretty you know within a week or two um and then i go with their intake with them we mail them an intake sheet you know it's like four pages long because we need to know all their history and then they come in and the first thing i do is just tell them because they will leave so many things blank or they'll guess and really have gotten good at it um just pulling stuff out of them you know, probably know doctors and hospitals and treatments and estimated years. And then I feel like I am going to take their case and we already have a new clinic packet. It's a template. It just auto fills all their stuff. And they signed the contract with the agreement, the medical releases, the, the forms. Um, and so and then a lot of them come in a denial in their hand that is appealable. So we have 60 days to appeal the some security. Um, and so then I go over to throw questions that I make note of. And then when they leave, they're a client. And then we, my, um, my paralegals open the file. They, they do the appeal. They log into SSA.gov. They file the appeal. They upload all the documentation. They send the letters of representation to the district social security office or the office of hearings if it's already there. Um, the helpers come up, it's, it's essentially that, um, kind of a little picky other people that you just can't help where they have a minor injury and there's just yep. things you do. If they do something like the same thing, you know, we, we send a letter, notifying the reduction commission and the opposing counsel or the insurance company or the employer. Often we have to file the actual notice of accident or notice of facial disease. You know, we generally have not done that. Although. How many of them come to me with an existing ongoing case? Okay. Like they all come a denied comp case. Um, some haven't even know if they have a comp case or not. Um, I had a friend, a fast friend of a former client of mine, send me his buddy. He's like, you got to help him. And so I was like, okay. And he didn't even know. But um, he was a sheriff's deputy and he was involved in a 
particularly a extreme PTSD and he didn't know if he had anything. If I said, yeah, we can file your PTSD as a facial disease. Um, and I mean, he sat here, died in Manatha is this tough guy, 20 year staff, you know, shared so it's different, but yeah, once they're selling to us, like paralegals do all the paperwork, all the representation stuff, all the forms, appeals, order medical goods. And then sometimes, like, so in any case, I might not lay on like that client for one to two years. We talk to them, I have the time, but you call their appeals, just we get the update over the phone, we log in. So I have people that I, you know, it's enjoyable. It's like, wow, you know, I haven't seen you in right. three years. How have you been? Or even and then COVID made everything worse. It's a waiting like saying, F minuses on those folks because they'll have the initial effort a year. Then you'll appeal, we'll have it a year. They're supposed to train them, you know, no need to have 20 days, but they don't. So by the time I'm skating for hearing, their case is two years old. Which is again not how social security is supposed to be, but yeah, right. I mean, these people who need benefits now, right, as soon as possible. Um, yeah, that's and long, say, long time to wait. Yeah, the same thing at Retron, like they almost didn't survive. Yeah, this is meant to win. This is benefits they should have had at the time. It's not like they paid an interest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, obviously. You know, running a solo practice has sort of benefits and, and challenges. I know, I know you've already touched on a number of them uh, already, but on, on the sort of rewards, rewarding side of running your own firm, you know, if you kind of boil it down to you know, what has been the most rewarding for you, what would that, what would that be? And it's just your total freedom of what your day looks like, what clients you take, um, what time you come in, you know, whether you go for a walk in the forehead or watch. I, um... I've been doing it. I've been self-employed 26 of my 30 years of practice. So I can't fathom working for somebody and I don't know how people do it. So it would be the freedom, just the actual total autonomy. You come in when you want, you leave when you want, you wear what you want. Um, you uh, take on donating the nonprofit award or you sign up for something that's going to pull you away. You, you know, you just structure your day. So just the freedom. And autonomy is really outweighs everything else. And as far as schedule and family time. Sure, sure. And then the, the hard part, which you can imagine, is there nobody has to believe, right? Like, and it's, um, the bug stopped with you, yeah. So obviously my parents have them do a great job and they do so, so, so much. If it doesn't get done, it's mine. You know, and um, and again, I have a lot of colleagues, so I asked for help or advice. Um, when I got those five hundred cancer cases, I'm like, I can't do this alone. Called up my friend Ann Marie, who has a way easier cup patches in Charlotte, and so we co counsel on these, and that's we're still doing. And that way, we delegate some like parents are doing X, Y, Z, so mine don't have to even think about it. Um, so the, the challenge is really just, there's only so many hours in the day and there's only so many people you can help. And so we go through waves where we just get so many new clients calling and we can't help them, but you don't have to screen them. And so it's just, 
you know, a bouncing act. Um, and you can't, the one thing that we talked about is so income, gross, gross income coming in varies dramatically in my practice, month to month. So if you do not have a stomach of steel when it comes to a lack of cash flow, you would never be able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Some people have always worked from the first day till the day when they retire because they literally are like, how do you do it? They'll understand if I don't have a paycheck from somebody else, you know. Yeah, sure. And does that stem from the, like the, I guess in SSDI cases in particular, right? Just from delays in the government sort of paying out when you've won a case or what? Right. If you have 13 million in May, you're going to have a lot more money in June, July, and August. But if you have one hearing, just the matriculation, it's, yes. Um, and there's no rhyme or reason to win a case settles. Um, but the state security case, I can win a case and I may not get paid for a month or I may not get paid for 10 months. There's just, I don't even want to bore you with it, but there's all of these home bills in the payment center. And then if the local office does it, PM, the SSI windfall offset, the payment center can't release the other. Just it is like Dante circles of hell when you're dealing with social security, and that's just the government trying to kind of work through how they're going to pay it out, how much they need to pay out, and what all that. Like, right? you the job. It's just yeah. individual humans not keying in what they need to key in, and you have to chase it, chase it, chase it, yeah. down. And they and they also yeah. do the same to the clients, right? It's not like the clients easily get it. I have clients that. They're like two months after the fully favorable decision by the judge, and they said, I don't have any money. Yeah. And so we have to constantly follow up, call. It's just, it's, so that's the hard part. You know, you don't have predictability. Now, because I have a pipeline, right? So I have cases from the beginning all the way to time. It's, it's still like I'm sitting around waiting for one, right? Really, I want to gaze. Um, so, but I just meant as far as unpredictability and then COVID definitely made things worse and slowed things down. Um, and then the other thing we have talked about is the cost of everything is going up dramatically. So I just got my bill for my annual case management software. And at least I got a time when I take I let me know ahead of time. He said, time matters is going to go up to match competitors. I go, well, what does that mean? And he said, it's going from 39 per user per month to 89 per user per month. So I just got 150% increase. Yeah. So it was 1500 bucks for the year is 36 hundred. Yeah. And they don't care if I didn't make any more money. Um, everything is more. And like I said, the medical methods are seeing what these people are charging, uh, these entities are charging, and then... Right, it goes up a little bit, but just everything else, you know, I constantly renegotiate with my copier because it's a store yep. that we can in. And if anybody was sick of paying what I was paying, so I called the guy and they said, perfect timing. And I was able to run my bill by under 100 bucks a month just by switching to this different uh, model. So, and then if you again, as I transitioned from the partnership to just sing again, a lot of stuff just was kind of an auto pay. And then 
things came to a sprinting halt, and I had to renegotiate everything. I had to cancel some things, let go of some things. And then I reshopped all my insurances. I pay workers' comp, I pay business liability, I pay business pushing property, pay um, legal malpractice. Everything was just going to flip up, up, up. Talk to the listserv of folks, somebody made a recommendation. And, and two years ago, I slashed, oh my gosh, I sold a fortune, switched all my insurances. And but if you don't, really, the money just gone. Like that's the thing is there's not somebody else that's going to take care of that for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it almost sounds like some sort of, you know, kind of playbook on how to do some of those things um and like you know annual reminders you know hey it's time to renegotiate your insurance or whatever it is exactly just to you know turn and i was curious and if you know channel of this new one cheaper they were going to increase and they did not and i was like you know because then that's what they do they leave in the door often with a decent premium and then they go up but now, again, as I said, soft practices, some lawyers have it way easier because they hire a dedicated office manager, right? The office manager yep. negotiates the new copy of these. The office manager negotiates the insurance and deals with all that. But apparently, their plates are full. And again, when you're solo, the money is your money, right? So yeah. Yeah. you can pay an office manager and then not pay yourself very much. So. Right, right. Just I mean, things you have to do it right yeah i was gonna say i mean how much of your time do you think is is spent working on some of these you know administrative tasks um you know obviously it, it, the vast majority is going to be spent on you know your legal work and your client work but like you say you're running a business right you are a business owner entrepreneur like this other stuff needs to get done as well sure it would probably be good to know but i don't know the percent i would have to say all of this, 80% is just part to sing along, really. Um, the other stuff, I don't even think of how, and like I gave the example, I didn't even have to renegotiate. So there was zero tied in as I just renewed everything. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, it would probably be good for me to know what percent I'm dealing and how I could delegate some of it, I guess. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, well, well Leah, I know we're, we're sort of running up on an hour here and I'm sure you've got a lot of stuff to, to get back to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been amazing hearing about, you know, your practice, um, all of the things that you're doing for folks, you know, in the Asheville area around disability and workers comp and, and really the many hats you wear as an attorney doing this work, right? It's not just the legal work. It is people dealing with, you know, the human condition issues under underlying whatever their legal issue is. And, you know, it's, you do so much more than just give legal advice. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of things for, for you to deal with. And it's been amazing for me to hear about, you know, your practice and how you, how you go about running things. Thanks. Yeah. So why don't we wrap up with then just a couple of quick questions that we like to sort of ask folks, uh, as, as we finish, um, one of them is just to learn a little bit more about you. Favorite movie of all time. Um, one of my top readers was Shawshank Redemption, and uh, I often quote from it. And um, sometimes when I'm out saying hope is a dangerous thing, which is, you know, Red says to Andy, but then sure. Andy comes back with this beautiful thing about hope and humanity. And then my cheesy line is, I can't watch Steel Magnolias enough, even though I've mid past completely Southern, that the breadth and depth of those female characters and the community is just, that's kind of hard to beat, really. 
Yeah, no, those are those are two solid choices. Um, all right, so la- last question: if if people could remember, um, you know, anything about you or your firm, uh, what would you want them to remember? Well, if you're talking about my client, I was like, every client that I presented, I hope that they would feel like I really did care about them. They weren't just a number, really just a fee. You know, I would like to think that they felt like I truly cared about them, their family, their whole situation and the outcome, and that they felt valued as a person by me and my paralegals. They truly felt respected and valued. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can just, from just talking to you, I can hear and I, I can see that that is the case. So uh, I'm sure your clients feel it as well. But uh, well, Leah, look, thanks so much for, for your time today. Again, it's been great to talk to you and learn more about your practice and all the things that you do uh, for your clients in your area. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.